Welcome to the Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Ravi Gupta, and this is a special episode. I just did a debate at the American Enterprise Institute in Washington, D.C., all about whether Democrats should embrace educational savings accounts, which are, you know, a version of educational voucher that allow families to go to private schools on public dollars. Uh, Obviously, you listeners know I'm a supporter of charter schools, which are nonprofit institutions by and large that are public schools that are run independent of school districts. This was a bit of a leap for me. I decided, hey, you know what? You know, we've been debating and discussing ESAs on this podcast for the greater part of two years now. And although I hadn't fully, and maybe I'm not even still fully 100% on this issue, I felt like it was important to articulate why progressives and Democrats would consider these and should consider them. Uh, It was a spirited debate. I had a lot of fun. And this is very much within our values, you know, going to a Republican think tank as Democrats to have a discussion about a substantive policy area. I was one of four participants, so you'll hear a bunch of other voices. They'll all be introduced in this audio. So we can just jump right in. Good evening, and welcome to the American Enterprise Institute and to the latest installment of our Ed Policy Debate Series. I am Nat Malkus, uh, Senior Fellow and Deputy Director of Education Policy Studies at AEI, and it is great to see uh, a room full of people, and welcome uh, to those of you who are on the live stream as well. Um, State private school choice programs have increased steadily since uh, the 90s, but the past decade has seen some pretty dramatic expansion. And today, the most popular program for private school choice is uh, undoubtedly education savings accounts, or ESAs, at least if you measure it by uh, state legislative action. Um, There's been 13 states that have established programs and five new programs just last year. Now, supporters are going to champion ESAs for a variety of reasons, but for providing families with more educational choices and also for um, improving competition between uh, schools. Opponents are concerned. They're concerned that ESA's expansion uh, might siphon money away from public schools, um, depriving them of resources they need to serve uh, students. But let's get to back uh, to the basics, first of all. What are ESAs? ESAs are distinct from vouchers or tax credit scholarships. And while the particulars vary by program, among the debaters, we've sort of agreed on a definition. So let me lay out some parameters uh, about what we're talking about. Education savings accounts provide parents of eligible students who are not enrolled in public schools with a state-funded education savings account. These accounts can be spent by parents on multiple things. They have multiple but restricted education uses. This can include tuition, tutoring, um, educational activities, uh, special education services, uh, instructional materials, all sorts of things. On average, ESAs are valued at about 7,500 bucks a year, although that varies. That's on average, which is about two-thirds of public school per pupil spending in the states that have these programs. Um, Those average valuations are for students who don't have special needs. ESAs for students with special needs are usually valued a good bit higher. The amount of funding in an ESA is gonna vary from state to state. With currently operated programs, they can be anywhere from about 
27 to 85% of average public per pupil expenditure, so a wide range. And it's not just funding. Uh, ESA features are gonna vary on eligibility, they're gonna vary on accountability, acceptable uses, and they differ dramatically across states. But the way they differ the most across states is across red and blue states. Of the 13 states with program, there's one, New Hampshire, that uh, can be argued to be a blue state. Um, why? Why is support for ESAs relatively weak uh, among Democrats and among states controlled by Democrats? Perhaps, uh, more importantly, should it be? That sounds like a debate worth having, and we're gonna have it tonight with four proud Democrats debating the motion. My fellow Democrats, we should support education savings accounts. Um, this is a pretty simple program we have tonight, but I'm gonna uh, run it down for you. In a moment, you're gonna vote on the motion, and I'll explain how to do that. You're gonna vote again at the end, and the winner is gonna be decided by you. Whoever changes the most votes wins the debate. The debate will proceed um, in opening statements, three minutes apiece, no more. And then we'll follow that. I'll uh, try and guide some moderated Q&A back and forth for about 20 minutes. Then I'll turn it over to the audience uh, to ask questions. That includes people here in the audience. It also includes folks watching over the live stream. We have a couple of ways you can do that. Um, you can do it through Twitter, um, now known as X, I hear, uh, with a hashtag AEI debate, um, or you can tweet directly at, uh, to us at, at AEI Education or at Nat Malkus, and we can get those questions. Um, before we go on to the voting, I would like you to make sure that you've silenced your cell phones, but do not put them away. In fact, get them out, because right now we're going to use them to vote on the motion. Um, indeed, uh, if uh, our debaters are um, as attuned to this contest as they should be, they too may vote on the motion. Um, so you're gonna text the number, and I think it's over here on the screen. On the screen. It's 571-622-3318, and it's a simple text of one. If you agree with the motion, my fellow Democrats, we should support education savings accounts. Two, if you disagree, and if you're undecided, send us a three. Again, that's 571-622-3318. Um, you won't receive a confirmation, but your vote will count if you vote at the beginning and vote again at the end. Only those votes will, will count. So you have just a few moments uh, to vote, and while you're doing that, I'm gonna introduce our debaters. Marcus Brandon is the executive director of Carolina Can, the North Carolina Campaign for Achievement Now. That's a statewide movement working to give every North Carolina child access to a great public school. Marcus served two terms as state representative in the North Carolina House of Representatives. Um, Marcus, which is the easier, easier path to change, through the state house or through education ag advocacy? Oh, hit your mic there, Marcus. My bad. So that's a good question. I often ask that myself. But I do think that um, I do not miss Greg at all. <laughs> Me and Greg served together in the North Carolina House, but no, I do miss, uh, he's a great guy. But I think that one of the things that happened was is when I first started, I, I, my first bill was to, to lift the cap off of charter schools. And I knew that the teachers' union was against it. 
Um, but I did not, I never anticipated. For me, this was a very, school choice was a very common sense thing to me. Um, I didn't understand. And then when I got there, um, and I said, you know, we're going to lift the cap off of charter schools. I mean, you would have thought that I had killed somebody. And I was not prepared for that type of response, uh, particularly when I saw the polls and and it showed that, you know, our base, the Democratic base, black and brown people, and pretty much all people supported school choice and supported charter schools. So I was very confused. So, so is it easier now, Marcus? It is. No. <laughs> well, let me let me introduce Ravi Gupta. He's the founder of Branch, a nonprofit digital media company. Uh, and get ready, because this is a list. He also co-founded Arena, where his team helped elect over 75 candidates and trained 1,500 political operatives. He also founded Squadra Health, his education work. He was the founder and CEO of Republic Network of Charter Schools, and he founded Reimagine Prep, the first charter school in Mississippi. Ravi also held numerous ro roles in the first Obama campaign and White House. Ravi, where do you find the time to found so much? I think maybe I'll get excited today and announce something while we're here. Okay, <laughs> okay, sounds good. Um, arguing against the motion, we have Greg Meyer. He's the state senator representing District 23 uh, in North Carolina State Senate. Um, that's Chapel Hill and North Central. Um, North Carolina. Prior to becoming a legislator, uh, Greg, uh, Greg spent 16 years working in North Carolina's public schools, and he's a trained social worker. Greg, where have you found the worst behavior problems in New York, in North Carolina classrooms or in the Senate? I can tell you that the cafeterias in a middle school and the North Carolina General Assembly are exactly the same. <laughs> they are just as full of in-group, out-group dynamics. And the first day when I was told you can sit there, but you can't sit there, I was like, where have I seen this before? This is facts. These are straight facts. Last but certainly <laughs> not least, Bethany Little is a principal at Education Council where she supports foundations, education associations, and other nonprofits to advance improvements in educational outcomes from early childhood through higher education. Bethany spent 20 years working in government and nonprofit organizations, including the Clinton White House, the Department of Education, and the Senate Help Committee. Uh, now, Bethany, you have been a friend to the AEI Ed program for quite some time, but I have to ask on this occasion, how does it feel to be on the AEI stage with all Democrats? Well, you'd think it feels safer, but leave it to AEI to somehow get me up here with Democrats shooting at each other. So we'll see how this goes. <laughs> My plan is working perfectly. Uh, okay, thank you to our debaters. Thank you uh, for, for being willing. I, I must tell you, it can be hard to get people to come and debate on the merits. And so I really appreciate the willingness of all four of our debaters. And it looks like we have a debate and we are going to close voting until we um, come back after the debate. And we have opening statements and we're going to start with those arguing for the motion. My fellow Democrats, you should we should support education savings accounts. And we're going to start with Marcus. Thank you. I apologize. I thought that the first question was supposed to be the opening. So um, mine was a little long. Look, it basically, it's about what I, how I started. It's, I, there are three reasons why I think we support um, ESAs and school choice in general. One is because the people support it. Um, that, to me, as a public servant, as a former public servant, and one that has dedicated my life to representing people, 
particular people of color, it is beyond me how our party has been managing to go against the entire base this long on this particular issue when it actually um, when it actually is germane to the, to the base, their outcomes. And in every instance, in criminal justice reform and 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 um in all of the reforms that we talk about, economic justice, all of these things, Democrats are right there to be able to discuss those issues. But when it comes to the issues of black and brown kids for 70 consecutive years, having 40-point gaps and five times more likely to get suspended for the same offense. And so I don't know, I will ask you, how long does it take for us to figure it out? And, um, you know, so those are the questions that I had. And so... And the people do support it. So that's the number one reason why I think that we should do it. But the second reason is because it makes sense, basically, policy, but it's also our constitutional responsibility. The Constitution says that we are required to provide a adequate public education. A lot of people confuse public education with just public schools, but that is not the law. The law is... is and states public education in your in the United States and in our in in North Carolina and in whatever state you live in no law says we're required to go to public schools it is the law says we're required to provide a public education and it is our constitutional responsibility to provide access to what the parents deem adequate it is not up to me to determine what's adequate it is not up to Representative uh, Senator Meyer or anybody on the stage or even you to determine what is adequate for someone else's child. And to me, that has always flabbergasted me. And so I, I think that we can do better than that as a party. And number three, it's because I'm a progressive. And this is the most progressive policy I've ever advocated for in my life. And I, w I would ask you, as you're going through this debate, I would ask you, when did it become progressive? When did it become progressive to say that only people with money deserve a safe space? And basically, that is the position of my party. If my governor has enough money to send some his child to a $40,000 private school, that is okay. But it's not okay for Ms. Brown's kid, who has three F's, two D's, and a C. Thank you, Marcus, and right on time. Um, uh, and opening for those arguing against the motion is Senator Greg Meyer. Thank you, Nat. Hello, everyone, and thanks to AEI for hosting tonight. Um, I want to open first with reminding us about the promise that we make to our greater calling of becoming one United States out of many one on which we depend on many institutions to bring us together, but none more so than public schools. We know that schools of all types are, serve the purpose of educating children, but when we put public as the word in front of schools, what we're talking about is everyone. Schools for everyone, and therefore schools that bring together all of us across our many differences, onto a literal playground and literal classrooms where we have to learn how to bridge our differences and become the best that the United States can become where we may not always agree, but we always can coexist. And even when you're done with being a, a child in school yourself, 
but you're a parent, public schools still play a critical role in uniting our communities. When I show up at a wrestling meet, when I'm on a work session, when I'm doing some goofy fundraiser to try and provide what the schools don't have money to provide, all of those things are done together with other folks who I may not agree with politically, but we do agree that we need one place where we all come together. And the threat of ESAs and some other choice uh, provisions to disuniting this fundamental piece of who we are and how we build our society is a sufficient threat that I worry about the role that ESAs and vouchers play in leading all of us to somehow admit defeat on the promise of what our society is meant to be. All right. Thank you very much. Uh, and arguing for the motion again, we have Ravi Gupta. Well, a couple of days ago, uh, my friend Greg uh, emailed his list, uh, his email list, and asked this question. He said, what's our most important institution for bringing our community together? Public school. What he should have asked is, what's the most important institution driving us apart? Because it's our public schools. When I started a first charter school uh, that I ran in North Nashville, the local zone public school had fewer than 1% of kids getting a college-ready ACT. This is a neighborhood with the highest incarceration rate of black males in the country. If you look across town to Bell Mead or to Green Hills or even to the magnet schools like Hume Fogg, those schools are excluding our kids. Uh, yet we call them public schools. We don't call the choice to move to the right neighborhood public. We don't call that public school choice, right? We don't, we don't get mad at Elizabeth Warren for sending her kid to a private school. We don't castigate them for that. We don't say that they're stealing from the system, yet we do that when certain families exercise choice. And so at a base level, I want to start there because it's not just true of North Nashville. When the GAO looked at segregation all these years later, 70 years on from Brown versus Board of Education, we're still segregated. About a third of kids in this country are attending schools that are predominantly one race or the other. And as the GAO pointed out, it's mostly black and brown kids. And those aren't just kids that have kids that have homogenous student bodies. These are schools that are under-resourced, that have the greenest teachers who are the least experienced and have the worst outcomes. And so often when we're defending ESAs and when we get to the Q&A, we'll get into the nitty gritty of like what the data says and what the polling says and all of that. But at a base level, I want us as Democrats to support people going into the market and making choices for themselves, just like we do with Section 8, just like we do with Medicaid, just like we do with housing. On all those issues, you would be laughed out of a room as a Democratic candidate if you said you could only take Medicaid to a government-run hospital, right? You can only take Section 8 uh, to a government-run institution. We knew when we built public housing facilities, these you know behemoths in places like New York where I live, uh, and congregated poor people together, that that was actually a huge mistake. And we moved off of that. And we moved off to it to such an extent that by the mid-90s, the Republicans who had originally supported Section 8 were starting to move back from it, and Democrats were vigorously supporting them. And I expect the same to be true in the next few decades as we move towards a more market-based system that also includes public schools, but others within our education system. All right. Thank you, Robbie. And for the last opening statement, arguing against the motion, Bethany Little. Thanks, Nat. I appreciate the opportunity to come here and talk about the problematic nature of ESAs. There are many, many ways in which they're problematic, ranging from the nature, the bait and switch nature of the cost, which has grown 400% in one year in Arizona, to the lack of quality, transparency, accountability, and the uses of funds for education, 
the duplicitous nature of the term education savings accounts itself. No one is saving in an education savings account. Some people caught an ESA a voucher plus because it could be used for things beyond tuition, but I call it a voucher minus. In Arizona, funds have already been used for about $20,000 worth of ski resorts, $350,000 worth of Ninja Warrior centers, trampoline parks and climbing gyms, and $1.2 million in martial arts training. All of this money spent by parents who apparently don't need help to pay tuition, but are happy to have their children's ski outings subsidized by the taxpayer. More than 70% of the students who are benefiting from these ESAs were already enrolled in private school before receiving the subsidies. ESAs are not an innovation to close opportunity gaps. They're a wealth transfer to those who don't need it, and they aren't providing a better education. ESAs are regressive, they're ineffective, and they're counter to the values that Democrats hold. Democrats value an education system that supports every student to develop the skills they need to thrive individually and contribute to our economy and democracy. I'm not naive enough to suggest that our current public schools are meeting that mark. They are inequitably funded and designed in ways that don't allow that to be true. But nor am I blind to the facts and evidence about ESAs to date to pretend that they lead to a more equal opportunity or a better education. Most recent studies show that to the degree it's knowable, since most voucher programs avoid any sort of student uh, um, assessment, students in voucher programs do not do better academically. Equally problematic is the fact that vouchers deprive students of their civil rights, ranging from their right to a free and appropriate public education if they have a disability, to their right not to be discriminated against um, based on their different religion, being gay, being homeless. Schools don't have to take them. Private schools don't have to take them in those cases. Charter schools offer innovation and choice, but they have to be open to all students and they have to be held accountable for academic outcomes, qualified teachers, fiscal responsibilities. The ESA programs provide none of those protections. Don't mistake my clarity about vouchers being bad policy for ignorance about why they're attractive. You could say, well, who doesn't want free money? But I know it's not that simple. Because public education is inequitably designed and resourced, it has trapped generations of students, especially low-income students and students of color in low-performing schools, and that has to end. But the answer isn't to ask low-income families and rural families to subsidize wealthy suburban schools that don't even serve them. Our country spends $23 billion more a year on schools serving majority white students than on schools serving majority students of color. That's an unjust, irresponsible choice. We don't support ESAs because we refuse to buy into the lie that parents have to choose between their civil rights and high-quality schools. All right. Thank you for those opening statements. So let me repeat back what I have heard. So these, these aren't comprehensive comments, but just some things I, um, I heard. From the, uh, the folks arguing in support of the motion, um, ESAs can open up opportunities. It might, they might open up opportunities, particularly for uh, disadvantaged students and some disadvantaged students who might not otherwise have an avenue towards uh, alternative educational placements, and that they're aligned with values that Democrats hold dear. And from the uh, folks arguing against the motion, I heard that ESAs work against the unity that can be brought with uh, public schools and with coalescing around them, that they can be wasteful, that they can be regressive, and that they lack the protections that public schools um, offer. Um, and, and, and more. So let's pick this apart um, a little bit, but let me start with the regressive uh, question. Bethany, you said, well, they're regressive. 
but I could have sworn that you guys said they were progressive. And so um, let me ask uh, both sides, but I'm going to start with the affirmative. Are they progressive? Yes, they're progressive. And I think, you know, there's often a different yardstick to use for ESAs in private schools and others, right? We talk about, well, kids taking money and using it for karate. But I think any one of us who attended a public school knows that you go to the aquarium, you have uh, recreational activities, et cetera. Uh, but also they get results. Like you just focus on the city that we're in right now. When we studied vouchers in Washington, D.C., kids were uh, 27% less frequently absent, uh, 34% more likely to report feeling safe uh, and more satisfied than their peers. And the academic results were the same. And that's on $9,600 versus $2,800. So significantly less money spent, same academic outcomes, but way better uh, non-academic outcomes. And obviously we're just at the beginning of this, right? If you would have looked at 10 years post-Brown, the system was chaos. We're just in the first few years after ESAs, and already some of the results, I think, are very promising. So uh, uh, anyone on the, um, the the side arguing against the motion? Are they regressive? Let's, let's go 10 years back, uh, post-Brown and think about what was happening in the roots of the voucher movement. And let's think about what's happening today. Vouchers were first created in the state of Virginia as part of the massive resistance movement. When the state of Virginia decided that instead of complying with Brown versus Board, they would shut down the entire state system of public schools and give parents a private school voucher. Parents took the money and then they literally went into the previously open public schools and pulled out the desks and chairs. They took down the goalposts and they took them to their private schools. And the students in Virginia only had the choice between segregated public school, black only public schools and white only private schools for five years until the federal government intervened. Here we are today with a repeat to go back to say, let's use a voucher system again. And we already know what the results are. It's Vouchers are not serving a majority of students of color. They are not helping most kids in poor rural communities. They are being used predominantly by affluent white families who are getting essentially a tax rebate for something that they're already paying for. That is inherently regressive. We don't need our public money paying for someone's private education that they can already afford. Um, I would ask Greg, um, I'm Senator Meyer, sorry. Um, it's all right, my friend. It's all right. Greg ask, is fine. Do you know the current statistics of, of our voucher program in North Carolina? I'm sure you're going to tell I'm me. I'm going to tell you because we keep flopping. This is affluent, affluent, affluent. In the state of North Carolina, 43% are on of color. We have over 15,000 people on the program. They all have income limits. And so for, for, the, for this notion that this is only for... We've had the program for 10 years in the state of North Carolina. It started off with people who were only on free and reduced lunch. We have moved it up steadily to include more people in the income bracket. But this whole notion that it's... Uh, this year, we did expand it to everybody. So, of course, all of the people that were not on it are now getting on it. So now they've inflated this number. There's only for affluent white people. That's not true. That, that's and, the- I, and, and, and we also have a special needs program that is ESA Plus, like she mentioned. And that also has helped 
tremendous families that do not are not affluent and they're not rich. The really the, the people that this helped is it's the reason why it's progressive is because it created an equity line. It's equitable. If if the governor and and and, and Senator Meyer can send their kids to a safe space then so can Miss Brown. And now she has to be able, she has the right to be able to do that. And now she has the access to be able to do that. So you guys want us to fear something that's not, that that we can't fear. They're like, oh, if we do this, black and brown kids won't have, well, we don't have it now. Quick, quick response. <laughs> <Go ahead. laughs> well, we've moved the goalposts a little bit because we're debating a universal ESA in which we're not just targeting. And that is a totally different definition. But let's look at a universal ESA and ask if it's regressive. In Arizona, Data suggested about half of the voucher recipients were from the top 25% of wealthiest districts. About 2.4% of Arizona's school-aged children used the ESA, but they took up 9% of the state's basic student aid funding. Also, the last time a voucher program showed positive results was before the iPhone was invented. The most recent ones have shown double-digit, double the pandemic losses recently in Louisiana and significant losses in learning in Indiana as well. They're not working. So let me ask a question here about ESAs. Uh, we, we can blur the lines here because a lot of this data is on vouchers. And vouchers and ESAs can be used very similarly. But, um, and you tell me, is it ESAs that are, the, that are the thing? And what is great about education savings accounts that may make them better than vouchers or um, other things that we've seen? Well, I think that a lot of the things that our party fears about school choice, I think ESAs is actually the one that actually protects public schools more than the other policies that I have supported. Because with education savings accounts, you can go from a range, like you said, it can go from 2,000 all the way up in our state if you are if you are special needs up to about 20,000 if you're autistic, right? And so, but what that autistic child gets to do is that they get to stay in public school, right? And they and if there's something that's missing, then they're able to use their ESA. And then they can be able to go and and be able to use that to get tutoring, to get that Latin program that they cannot get because they are in a rural area. The most parents are making choices because there may be one or two things that they are missing out of the public school that they're not getting, but it's essential enough for them to be able to make a different choice. But Marcus, I do need to call foul there because we we agreed at the beginning to talk about ESAs as a replacement for for school. So I, I take your point, but. On the debate topic, we're talking about not the special ed versions. But anyway, continue they, on. They, they would work the same exact way. If we, this is the reason why progressives need and Democrats need to be at the table, is because um, I was talking to Ravi earlier. This, whenever you just allow Republicans to make the decisions and make the policy, and you just abdicate your responsibility as a legislator just because you don't like the policy, then now you have you now run into a problem where it can be inequitable. But if progressives sat at the table and said, hey, we want to be able to have a $1,000 to $2,000 ESA for all of our kids so those that are in public schools can stay in public schools. And those who do not want to go in public schools, we might have a $7,000, $8,000 program for them. But ASAs can mean many different things. It means I can stay in public school and that Latin program that I can't because I'm in the midst of the rules or that 
STEM program that I want to get because I couldn't get it because the STEM program in public schools was at the that that line was around the corner and out the door and I didn't get in and I'm still on the wait list and been on the wait list for two years, but I can go somewhere else and get that. This allows people, I think it gives them more flexibility. I also think that public schools have the 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 the, the most infrastructure to be able to provide for ESAs more than any private school, maybe any charter school. They have all the facilities. They have the teachers. They have the buses. They have they have the the, the ball fields. They have everything. So let, me I, turn, so. let me turn to the those arguing <laughs> against. Is there something about ESAs that are that are particularly problematic in terms of uh, choice? First of all, I don't think that there's a sufficiently drawn line between what is a voucher and an ESA in any definition that's ever been offered, including the one we're using tonight. To the extent, as we agreed in our definition, that an ESA is something to replace funding that you would have to go to a public school. Therefore, you have to leave the public school. I'll go back to my disuniting argument. But I'll also play on Marcus's field for a second and say, if we're going to talk about ESAs that are used as a supplement to your public school education, you get it because you have a disability or something, or just because we want to give you a supplement for your education, then why not just give people a child tax credit? It's paternalistic and regressive to say you have to use it for this other thing. We can just give you the money back and you can decide what's the best thing for your family. I'd also add that in the specialness of ESAs, let's talk about the, again, Arizona law, which is our best example of a universal ESA on the table today. No academic accountability, no financial transparency, no student safety measures. Any amendment they tried to make to ensure non-discrimination or improve oversight failed. Ability to have people take testing so we know how kids are doing failed. Schools don't need to be accredited. Teachers don't need to have credentials or training other than a high school diploma. Schools don't need to teach state standards. Zero measures on student safety, no site inspections, no fingerprint and background checks for schools. The Arizona Department of Education doesn't vet any of the providers. All schools are automatically approved and all vendors and tutors need only pre present their high school diploma. Um, unlike public schools, there are no mechanisms for purporting ab abuse, fraud, or misconduct, and no processes for remedying or even monitoring. Robbie, this that, is, that is quite a list, and I got to let yeah. Bethany like take a breath here before. Um, yeah. But Robbie, is there no accountability with ESAs? How well, do you respond? It's a good thing that we're not debating the Arizona law only, right? So we're picking the worst law, and actually, I think this is a reason why Democrats should support ESAs because. Uh, as Marcus said, we need Democrats at the table because, you know, in every debate, when I had Corey DeAngelis, for instance, on my podcast, the biggest source of contention was, yeah, I believe, yes, we need standardized tests. I believe, yes, we need more transparency. Um, and the same is true when, when I talked to Adam Peshek. That's why we need Democrats at the table. Um, I also think that there's this sense that we're subsidizing the rich people. We are subsidizing the rich people today. When, I, when the, the school in, in Bell Mead or the school in Green Hills or Hume Fogg exists or we're creating gifted and talented programs for kids starting in preschool in New York where they're just in the program until 12th grade, like at Hunter, like that's subsidizing rich kids. Never mind the billion dollars that the 74 just reported on that's leaving the system in New York so that we could send kids with ADHD horseback riding, right? That's happening in the system right now. We could all talk about waste, fraud, and abuse. And one other thing on the, on the, uh, the question of results, there's not been, nobody here has mentioned a single study about universal ESA programs. Even Matt Barnum, uh, when he writes about this, is very clear. And I could read you the paragraph where he says, you know, we can't really generalize. 
because we don't have universal ESA programs that have been tested. They just were passed. So we could talk about voucher programs, but if we're going to then say, all right, well, what's the, the closest approximation? Then look at all private schools. If you look at the performance of private school kids versus public school kids, it's lights out stronger. Robbie, in the ideal world that you create with you, where you have an ESA program as distinct from a voucher program, what's the line that you draw between them? Well, I think there are a couple of things. Um, One is the universality, right? I think that's the starting point. The very thing that I think that you guys have issues with, which I get, right? Like there are all sorts of things that need to be fixed within a lot of these laws. And I agree with you on the flaws of the Arizona law, for sure. Um, I view it as, as a starting point, and this is where I hope Democrats come to the table and help fix them. Just like there were issues with Section 8, by the way, 50 years ago. Uh, but the universality is the starting point. Now, the second part of it that is interesting in places like Utah is the fact that it, the funds can carry over from year to year so families can plan. So I think one of the, the interesting critiques of ESAs is that sometimes they don't, they don't hit the cap. Uh, they don't, um, they're not adequate to meet the needs of, to, to fund the tuition at most schools, which is also true, by the way, of Section 8, where in New York, Section 8 will get you $2,600 for a one-bedroom apartment, but 4600 is what the average one-bedroom apartment costs, so it's not specific to education. But I like that the carryover exists because family can then, okay, say, all right, we're going to spend a little bit less this year, but because we know the high school is more expensive, that certainly seems different. Let me ask a question that is sort of glaring when you look across the the political landscape, right? The, the, The motion says, my fellow Democrats. So let's talk about that for a second. Republicans tend to dominate in places that are more rural and uh, and wider, right? We know this. But if you look at the public opinion, um, uh, African-American, Hispanic families, uh, pretty supportive, at least in some polls. And beyond that, in cities, it seems like that's where the whole ESA competitive marketplace would work, whereas in rural Texas, that has posed some problems for these bills. Why is it that Republicans, rather than Democrats, seem to be on uh, fire for ESAs, whereas, whereas Democrats are not. And does that mean that Democrats should oppose it or should get on board? I'll, I'll ask the uh, I'll ask those arguing against first. I don't think I can speak to the motivations of Republicans. To be honest, I, I listened to what Greg said about the history of these uh, programs, and I think that's really compelling and important. Just this week, the governors of Kentucky and North Carolina put out a thoughtful op-ed about these issues in USA Today. And they pointed out that their schools are, their states are near the bottom of the country as it relates to spending on public schools and on teacher salaries. And yet somehow Republicans, rather than wanting to fix those issues, are saying, let's spend this money on vouchers. And we remember segregation academies, and those are very real, uh, a real legacy here. So I don't think I'm the right person to speculate on, but I do think these are things to keep in mind. But as far as the the logic that, well, it, it seems like groups that tend to be Democratic do poll, this does poll strongly with, and that Democrats tend to live in urban centers where the sort of competitive, like you'd have more choices of where to spend it on, especially about schools. Doesn't that seem like it would make it more of a Democratic issue, not less, or Democrat issue, really? 
I think the question is what kind of choices would all these students really have? And I think you have to understand that a marketplace doesn't necessarily create equal opportunities for students. I thought it was interesting that Ravi raised the performance of private schools, but I like to know what percentage of private school students have disabilities or English learners or are homeless or in foster care. Those are the kids that our public schools um, educate. And that kind of choice isn't really available. The people choosing in a public, in a private charter school system, sorry, in a private voucher system are the schools, not the parents. They get to choose who to serve. Tell them about the, the poll. The polling, yeah. So um, a lot of the polling that's done on this issue is very disingenuous. But this week, a really interesting poll was just done by the Georgia um, Budget and Policy Institute and University of Georgia. And they asked a more authentic question. This is a live issue in Georgia. And really asking the question for people who have been stuck in low-performing schools. Let's focus on that as an important piece. And said, which action do you think would best support students in underperforming schools? Give parents $6,500 to pay tuition at a private school, provide these public schools with additional state support, or increase public school options such as, such as charter schools or dual enrollment. Now, that's not a fake, like, would you like $7,500 for the government because that'd be fun and free. That's a real choice set. And in that choice set, only 15% of parents came back and said that they wanted a voucher. Uh, 43% of parents came back and said that more support for their public schools would be better. And just in case you're going to go here, let me just say that 18% of Black parents chose the voucher and 46% of Black parents chose investment in public schools. Does, that's literally the only poll ever to say that. I mean, I could read six different polls all by extremely or, reputable polling or firms thousand, that show the opposite. Or a thousand polls. And so really what you're... What, what what you've said that you didn't give the other choice. And this is, and, 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 and that is, should we just have all those choices? And I think that you would have had a different number for that. But the numbers that you present is exactly the numbers that we see coming out. Uh, and and when, when you create those choices, it's about 15%. It's about 20%. This is not something that's going to, the big boogeyman that, I've, that they've held my kids hostage to for about 50 years, that this is going to ruin public schools. It's not true. I'm Most people will choose to go to a public school. So that poll, would I send my kid there, is different from do I support a mother who raises the child having the ability to choose what's a safe space for her child? That's a different question. I'm, I'm going I'm to go to Robbie very quickly, and then I want to uh, just alert the audience, both here and uh, online, very shortly. I'm running late on time here. We're going to go to audience Q&A, so uh, be ready for that. But Robbie, I would just ask before uh, we move to audience Q&A, there's a lot of precursors that would seem to make ESAs sort of a good issue for Democrats, naturally. I, yeah. Again, the question's, can you, can you all just address that briefly? Why, why is it not there if the precursors are, are there? Why the support from Democrats yeah. isn't there? I think it's because Democrats have a Pleasantville problem. Like we have one group of our base, which are affluent college-educated people who when they think of public schools and they wear their proud public school button, they think of waving to the mailman, walking to this glistening school, while this other part of the base, which I can read six different polls, I have them in front of me, are screaming at the Democratic Party to say, you know what, my school isn't safe. My academics in my school are horrible, and I want more options. But the Democrats
Democratic Party has traditionally ignored that part of the base in part because of various interest groups, but more importantly because of just the way they see the world. They don't they don't empathize with people enough to say that 70 years on, if the system is this bad, we need more options. It's not just handing somebody $2,300 to $7,300. Um, it's, you know, I know that we could say that that's like disingenuous or whatever, but that's literally what's happening. So if you're asking somebody, would you rather have the check or would you rather have the option that's down the street from you and they choose the check, that should tell us something. Are yeah, but I, wait, 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 wait. Now, yeah. I got to say, that's not actually the way the pollster asked the question. The pollster does pretend that it's a gift. I'm going to give you $7,500, but it's a trade-off, and the hidden terms are not discussed. So they don't say, I'll give you $7,500, and you'll no longer have the right to a free, appropriate public education, or the school may not let your student who's an English learner in. They don't say any of that in the polls. So we have to be thoughtful in policymaking about really whether or not what people think they're getting is what they're getting. We need to be more, more attentive to what really... The, the deal is. But that's that a is standard. The, that's the fun. Go ahead. Oh, sorry. sorry. Yeah. Go ahead. But, oh, we um, don't. We don't apply that standard to anything. We don't say like <laughs> you know. We're just saying. Well, okay. Here's twenty different, very loaded caveats to this. And by the way, these polls will will have show the same results whether you just say do you support education savings accounts, or when you describe what an education savings account. I don't know what else you want to ask from the pollsters. And we're talking about the most reputable pollsters, like YouGov, which has a two point nine out of three on Nate Silver's rating. It's the fourth highest ranked polling firm, and that's not just them. It's Morning Consult. It's others, right? Like basically every reputable polling firm that's ever looked at this shows the same thing, that not only do most Americans, most Democrats, and even, uh, and especially most people of color support them when you describe them to them or just say this in ESA. So I'm going to have to plant the flag there because at the point the debate goes to warring polls, it gets boring. So we're going to go to the audience for questions. Now I have two rules when asking questions at AEI. The first is please give your name. And the second one is please ask a question. Um, so let's see, um, right here. Thank Hi. you. Uh, okay. Haley, native North Carolinian, former Guilford County teacher here. Um, so looking at North Carolina's ESA program, the budget language for the expansion included a commitment to reinvest the difference between the amount of an ESA and the average per pupil expenditure in North Carolina. Is there a sense of how that will be operationalized? And does that assuage some concerns about funding leaving public education if some of the money stays even when the student has left? Well, we would have to, I would think we would have to see how many people enroll so we can see how the, you know, how that gets reinvested. But it is, you know, it, it is a savings to the state. Um, I, we talk about the rich, affluent child. We pay already. We pay $10,000 per year for every rich child that goes to public school. No one has a problem with subsidizing the rich kid that goes to the public school. But all of a sudden, when you give them $3,000 to go to a school of their choice, all of a sudden, we don't want to fulfill our constitutional responsibility for that particular child. But we have always spent money, and we have always subsidized the rich kid. And so um, but that savings is supposed to come back, and it is supposed to help with some of the infrastructure. And I believe that funding, but one of the things I want all the students to know Funding is an issue, but it has absolutely 0% to do with performance. And so just because you fund a teacher $1,000 more a month doesn't mean reading scores go up. And it doesn't mean that we've funded and continue to fund for 70 years, and we fund more than any other country in the world. And yet we have the lowest outcome. So it's not just funding, and funding will not fix 
70 years of my kids being 30 to 40 point gaps ahead, uh, uh, behind. And so I want you to understand, I do agree with more funding, but please do not believe in the misnomer that more funding, because my kids perform the exact same in the most funded state as they do in the least funded state. And that is a fact. So Marcus, let me take it to the, <laughs> what about the savings coming back in North Carolina? Does that assuage it at all? It does not because the, <laughs> the, the savings are not like they're being reinvested into other public school spending. And there's a fallacy that has been, that, that is in, in that kind of assumption of that's what happens and has been perpetuated on the stage tonight that somehow we can do all of the above which is a fallacy that believes that we have an infinite budget that could fully fund our public schools and have all these additional programs, ESAs, et cetera. And that is not the way state budgets work. State budgets have a limit. They have a cap. And North Carolina has been under a constitutional mandate for over two decades to provide additional funding to our public schools that the legislature has failed to do. And I don't know a single educator nor a single parent who would agree with my former colleague Marcus Greg, that, can you tell that them additional the, funding wouldn't they make a difference to their schools? There, and which party was in control so, of that ruling for 90% of that tenure? But Marcus, you were in the legislature and, and were I'm just there saying it's responsible a for that. People as was always, I. But, he, but always held my kids hostage to this number, this invisible number of fully fund schools. This Leandro ruling where the Democrats, my party, were in control in North Carolina for the majority of the Leandro ruling. They didn't make a dent in it. Now they're all of us, oh, Republicans, you should do it. When they did nothing to that's, hit that. But that's because it's impossible. <laughs> that's why. Question, I, I do want to get it, <laughs> keep it on the ESAs. <laughs> Um, one thing we didn't bring up, to, oh, Mark Lerner, one thing we didn't bring up tonight is the reason that there's been so so much interest in ESAs recently is because of COVID, where pr private schools stayed open and public schools shut down. And uh, it made it look to parents like the Democrats were more interested in protecting the adults than taking care of the kids. And now we have this tremendous uh, academic loss for especially for the most disadvantaged children. So that's one reason that ESA, ESA has become more popular. One thing I wanted to mention is that I've been involved in D.C.'s charter school movement for almost 30 years. And while I've been a tremendous advocate, what I'm seeing is that academic test scores after 30 years are no better in charters, especially for disadvantaged kids, then we can compare them to the traditional schools. So I need you to draw it to a question. Are, when it comes to ESAs, are we going to throw out academic uh, accountability? Or is there going to be some measure to say whether they're uh, helping kids academically or not? That sounds like a question for the uh, side arguing in the affirmative. Yeah, I think uh, the charter space, I think, is a, is a good uh, sort of, I think, story for us to learn from. The, if you look at the sort of credo studies that have come out from Stanford, you know, every few years they release these studies, which I think are the gold standard that charter haters used to quote them until the past two studies that came out that actually show that charters by and large are outperforming traditional public schools by pretty dramatic margins, especially within cities. Uh, you are right to point out that on special education, they're still not there yet. Uh, and I think that the conversation around charters hopefully is similar to the conversation we have around ESAs, which is flawed to start, 
like those early charters, there was there were too permissive. If you look at Ohio, Michigan, Arizona, a lot of these states that had early charter laws were just quite frankly too permissive. Just like as Bethany pointed out, Arizona right now is a bit of a mess. Uh, but then you fix those. Uh, you come to the table, including with Democrats at the table. President Obama, uh, I think, had a huge role to play. People like Cory Booker have a huge role to play to help make these laws. You know, Elizabeth Warren, when she was four charters, had a really like important role to play to add accountability and other mechanisms. And now, lo and behold, we have a, a regulated market uh, of charters with accountability, with transparency requirements, and they're getting better. Every couple of years when we see the studies, the charters are getting better. And I hope and expect that with Democrats at the table, we'll see the same with ESAs. So uh, uh, over here, are, are we throwing out accountability? Are, are we just not concerned about the academic outcomes with the ESAs? Is that... Uh, yeah, I mean, that's that's pretty straightforward. There's not been a single ESA program passed that's allowed any sort of academic accountability. And the interesting thing is the trend line studies on vouchers starting back at the beginning of when the charter movement was going on is the voucher studies show less and less of efficacy over time as the char charters show more and more. So if you want public school choice, if you want school choice, let's do it through magnets. Let's do it through district open district enrollment. Let's do it through charters. Let's keep civil rights. Let's keep accountability. We don't have to trade those things off. Um, I have a, a, a question back back here in the back. Hello, my name is uh, Owen, and I was actually took advantage of a open enrollment district program in high school, and I feel like I benefited greatly from it. My question to you is, at the beginning of the debate, you mentioned some number, I think 85% of tuition is covered by an ESA. What do you tell the parents who can't afford that extra 15%? So let me just, well, that number, it's, it's, it's right in spirit. It, the, the number is uh, between 27% and 85% of what the state spends on average. So it's probably less in most cases than 85% of tuition. Nonetheless, the question is, is it not enough? I'll start. I think Robbie here probably has a better answer, but I, because I, I'm going to give you an answer that a lot of people doesn't believe, and but it's true. Most of these private schools have already had some type of program to be able to meet the needs of these kids that couldn't afford it. And what we have seen is that private schools, it's the exact opposite of what they're what they're claiming. Private schools that used to be lily, lily white now can combine what their funds had and be able to bridge that gap much easier and 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 be able to integrate their school much more easier than they were before. And we've seen a lot of these private schools that were predominantly white schools now have increased their diversity with black and brown kids tremendously. And that is in the numbers. And uh, we also have the numbers that right now our program has 43% of color. All of them were on income limits. And so where there is a will, there is a way. And I also want to just say this about policy. If we made policy that it only affected all kids, then we wouldn't have any policy. If we said that only the school that the IB program or the Spanish immersion program or the early middle college, wouldn't, all of them cannot accept all the kids. So if the threshold is that they have to accept all the kids, and they have, it to be accessible to all kids, you don't even meet that standard in your public schools of choice. Robbie, let me, ask, let me, let me oh, get yes. to the cost question briefly. Oh, yeah. 
the, the question he asked is as far as, are they just not enough? Yeah, and is I, that a problem? In the charter, we faced this too. The University of Arkansas uh, shows that charters only get two thirds the same funding and we did what we could. I, I lived this. Uh, and this is why I want Democrats at the table. It's just like with Section 8, where I talked about the 2600, 4600 split in New York. Democrats don't say, well, let's not have Section 8. What Democrats say is, let's fund more Section 8. Let's actually make that 2600 the 4600 which is the average one-bedroom cost. That's the conversation I want to have with Democrats, is not finding an excuse to get to no, but actually finding an excuse to get to yes, because it can give more options to families, and it's what families want. Um, to the side arguing against, I have a question here from uh, that, that's, that's come in over the internet, and it says, Bethany, you said that uh, students who take advantage of an ESA give up their right to a free and appropriate public education, that's special education um, provisions, and this question says, but if they, do private school students give up that right if they pay for it themselves? I, I think the question is getting at, well, if they choose to take an ESA, is that really giving up a right that they can always choose to come back to a public school? So are they giving up rights and protections? Uh, sure, they are in terms of if you take your public dollars and go to public school, you have the right to a free appropriate public education. If you take your public dollars and go to private school, you don't have that right. You get what the school gives you, and if it's not sufficient to educate to meet your needs, you can drop out and leave, but you can't have your needs met there. You don't, you no longer have that right. It's pretty straightforward. Just to this point on the cost issue for one second, though. Um, interestingly, yes, on average, it's two-thirds of tuition as well that it covers, and so you do have... In Arizona, the gap's $3,000. So if you're a parent who doesn't have the extra $3,000, you can't really use that voucher anywhere. But also, there have been studies showing that in places where they put voucher programs into place, the price of private school tuition goes up in those districts. And so you're really actually continuing to price families out of the market. Uh, okay, I'm going to have one more question from uh, the audience. And I have a question right here in, in the back, Michaela. I want to open a conversation that Bethany started earlier. Marcus, you opened by saying that this is what the people want. But our polling at Democrats for Education Reform reveals that Black and Latino parents prefer public school choice over private school choice. So in a political arena where you only have so much leverage and so many opportunities, why pursue private school choice, which doesn't protect students' civil liberties, which isn't held accountable for student outcomes and which often charges parents upwards of $3,000 extra in tuition when you could instead divert that political opportunity and leverage towards developing a more robust public school choice system like charter schools, magnet schools, innovation schools, open enrollment that abides by the requirements of public schools and still works to dismantle school segregation. So that was a very eloquent one, but I'm going to try and shorten it with, in hopes for a short answer. Why not public school choice? Because there's a fantasy that believes that just because it's public schools that people are safe because it's required. And that's not true. I can give you the numbers that you're supposed to treat Black people the same, but I've been suspended at five times the rate. So just because you say it does not mean that that's true. And just because the kid, you're supposed to take a kid that's as LGBT, that's an LGBT kid, doesn't mean that they're not going to get bullied. And it doesn't mean they're not in a safe space. I know the fantasy that everybody wants to create, that is this, oh, it's the public schools and everybody 
everybody's safe and we have to take everybody and we love everybody. That is absolutely emphatically not true. And every parent has the right to decide whether their child is in a safe space. And if it's not in a safe space, they have the right to make themselves in a safe space. And we have the responsibility to provide access to it. Ravi, I want to get you on this as well. You're a charter guy. Why not just charters? Because charters grow. I mean, charters are very slow growth. They're linear growth and they're great, but it's part of an ecosystem, right? Charters also are fairly homogenous. Like if you go to Nashville, my school was built on the no excuses model. KIPP was built on a no excuses model. Nashville Classical was built on a no excuses model. They're just not offering the diversity, which is why, you know, and I've seen the Democrats for Education Reform polling. It doesn't, for me, it doesn't say they don't want this. It just says, and as a charter person, I love this. They love their charters. But if you look at the YouGov poll from January 2023, 70% of Black families are saying they support ESAs. And they say they support it whether you describe it or not. So if you just say, do you support ESAs? And then you describe the ESAs, you're getting support both times. So to those arguing against, should is, is charters the way to go? I'm excited, Greg. This is where you come out and support the charters. I am too. <laughs> I, I, I think that we want to see a broad system of schooling that has an educated populace. We want to get a certain return on tax investment for that. The challenge that you have with unregulated ESAs that you don't have with a highly regulated charter is that you end up with schools that are substandard, as Bethany has pointed out, that are straight up fraudulent, including schools that claim more students than they have, or that we have a a school that a reporter has been trying to find for months in North Carolina and she literally can't find the school. Uh, But ultimately, to the point that we all agree on of wanting every kid to have an education, we can't afford in this country to be putting our tax dollars into schools that aren't delivering, no matter what type of school they are. And the vast majority of students being in traditional public schools or public charters, let's get it right. Okay, we're gonna have to leave it there and move on to our closing statements in the same order. And I I just wanna take a quick moment and thank uh, my uh, debaters for civil and constructive uh, dialogue. I'm really glad I didn't have to do any defense here. So two-minute closing statements, and we'll start with Marcus Brandon. Well, I appreciate you guys coming out. I appreciate the people who um, came in online. My basic closing statement is this. It doesn't really matter, okay? We have all the opinions. We can have all of the studies. We can have all of the polls. And that does not matter to me at all. What matters to me is if Ms. Brown has the right to choose a safe space. And this is all this is about. This is about nothing else other than that. You might feel that that school is inadequate, but that's not your decision to make. You might feel that you know, they might discriminate against this or they might not talk about the religion the way that you want to talk about religion, but that's not your decision to make. As a as a legislator and as policymakers, you are to create access. We don't tell women, well, we don't like that doctor, so you shouldn't go there. 
and I, and and we have we have all of these things about you know we want women's rights to choose and we and and they deserve it and then when the baby's born it's like but you don't have the right to choose whether they have a safe space we need to control that and it fundamentally goes against progressive policies it fundamentally goes against what we stand for as democrats if you see an injustice you fight the injustice 70 years and they're like oh is it safe is that don't ask me to fear something that exists. Are you, it already exists. Or, or black kids are going to be this way. Black kids are going to be that way. Or they're going to have... Or people are going to be... Dis- We've been discriminated against. We've been having 40-point gaps for 70 years. So I can't fear that because it exists. And so until people are going to have a legitimate conversation on how to fix it, then we are going to be creating robust choice for parents to have an option. All right. Thank you, Marcus. And two minutes to Greg Meyer. Thank you to my my true friends, guys that I've debated this with for 10 years, Ravi and Marcus Nett. Thanks for hosting. I think it's been great to work with you. Um, I agree with the last point that Marcus said of we need to have a real debate about how to fix the fundamental promise of public schools. That's what Democrats should be for. That is the single most important thing that we can do in the face of a disuniting America, is we can figure out how to get this one institution to hold us all together and to make sure that no kids are left behind. Anyone who wants to make an individual choice for their own child in a different setting, they can do that. They have the right to. But in public policy, we have the need to treat the entirety of us to the best that we possibly can. And that means giving us institutions where we hold together, where we bind each other to being a populace. And there's no more important one than public schools. Thank you, Senator Meyer. And uh, last arguing for, Ravi Gupta. You know, I think that the eloquence and and really insightful points by um, my friends on the other side are only a reason why we should support this resolution because we want smart Democrats at the table making these laws better. First of all, they're here to stay in a lot of these states. But even if they weren't, like if we came together and crafted a an ESA bill, I'm confident that that would actually help improve the lives of kids. Uh, there's a point here that hasn't gone addressed, which is uh, the point about money leaving the system. This is, you know, Reason just put out a report this week that showed that inflation-adjusted revenue for public schools grew from $12,852 in 2002 to $16,065 in 22. That's inflation at uh, 2020. That's inflation adjusted. And they showed that that money is going to increase staff, but not increase teaching staff. So two thirds going to increase non-teaching staff at the same time that teacher salaries are going down in inflation adjusted numbers. So when we talk about money leaving the system and this huge impact that, that these ESAs are happen- having, that's a red herring. The money's leaving the system right now. The money's getting misspent within the system right now. Whether ESAs are here or not, that money's getting burnt. And so what I ask people is to think about where we started. Democrats support Section 8. Democrats support Medicaid. No no good Democrat would ever stand up and say, you can only take that Medicaid money and take it to uh, a public hospital. Actually, they would be shouted down for saying that. <laughs> you, you'd say that's exclusionary. You know, you say private practice doesn't take Medicaid. You say that's immoral, right? And I say, I think the same should be true of education. We don't want to be funneling kids to only one option. Uh, We want to give families more options. They're asking for it. We should give it to them. 
Thank you, Ravi. And last, and again, certainly not least, Bethany Luke. Thanks, Nat. Look, providing an excellent education for every child isn't rocket science. Pre-K, small classes, evidence-based instruction, safe, inviting, supportive classrooms, maybe some tutoring. These are just some of the things that we don't provide universally, but we could. Addressing the inadequate, inequitable funding situation in our schools would serve all students better, not just the few that private schools choose to accept. So let's talk about who's really choosing. Parents whose children are learning English or who have a disability or who are homeless, there are no private schools lining up to educate those kids for $7,500 each. Let's not forget that fewer kids in a school district does have a real cost. It means less funding for the district, and you can't open half the building or turn off the heating for part of the winter or not have third grade this year. Fundamentally, vouchers and ESAs are antithetical to the Democratic Party priorities of opportunity and justice. They're bad education policy for kids. They're ineffective at providing a good education. They're incredibly regressive. They deny students their basic civil rights. And they're not accountable for student performance, background checks on teachers, or fiscal ba- basic fiscal responsibility. The question I would ask isn't whether or not Democrats should support ESAs. The question worth asking is, why does anybody favor this failed, inequitable, and irresponsible policy? My fellow Democrats don't embrace it, and they shouldn't. There are clearly better answers for our kids. All right. Thank you again to our debaters. They have had their say, and now it is time for you to have your say. We have a final vote opportunity on the screen uh, right here. The number again, 571-622-3318. If no one has been persuasive, you can enter a one uh, for agreeing, just as you may have before. A two if you disagree with the motion, and if you are still undecided after all this, I cannot imagine. Uh, You can text number three to this number, and I will await the results. You have about 60 to 70 more seconds to get your votes in. Um, While we're waiting, the debate is over, so I have a post-debate question for all uh, my groups here. If there was something that could make an ESA work differently than these many Republican efforts, what would you want to see that might make it viable or would make it more viable? Who wants to uh, take that one first? I mean, I'll start. The first thing that I would put in place is mandatory apples-to-apples accountability to know whether there's student performance gains. And the second thing that I would put in place would be mandatory auditing provisions to make sure that there's not the financial waste. I agree with all that. I all think right, that's, right, yeah, yeah. I agree with that. And the other thing I would add is what I started with. I would I would add that kids could stay in public school and get a supplement to do things that they're not able to do in public school to enhance their education. I do that through a child tax credit, but I'd take all of these things. But if pigs, pigs could fly, I'd take that too. That's not what's on offer. Okay. Um, any uh, last thing, a prediction, and I would like it from each of you, what's the likelihood of a blue state ESA before 2040? 80%. 80%. 80%. The, the Democrats will not continue to ignore the base for 30 more years. They will have to be held accountable for going against the entire base. <laughs> I put it 50-50, and I think it's really in the hands of the people crafting these laws because, you know, I agree with Bethany that if the laws continue to be as crappy as they are right now, then the then no Democrat is going to support it. But I do have faith that enough Democrats are going to come to the table and fi- help fix these laws because of this debate actually is going to persuade all of them, of course. Yeah. 
I've been in politics long enough to have like a closet full of broken crystal balls. So I don't generally try to prognosticate on these things, but I'd say it's less than 10%. I don't have a clue. I serve in a red state legislature and we're in pigs fly land. So (laughs) I don't know what's going to happen in the blue states. I thought North Carolina was the bellwether for the nation every time. No. <laughs> All right, so I'm going to call for my folks. Here's here we have the envelope. Okay. Okay. So, those running in the affirmative, the initial vote was 39% in the affirmative. And those voting against the motion initially, 32%, with 29% undecided. The second round vote for those in the affirmative, 39%, a change of zero points. (laughs) And those uh, arguing against the motion, 56%, a gain of 24 points. And those arguing against the motion are the winners. I think we're all winners for a positive and engaging debate. And I wanna thank my debaters and thank my audience. And that's a wrap for this debate.